Hi, this is Ben Lowell with Back to the Bible Canada and Dr. John Newfeld. We continue our series in the book of Revelation today called The Triumph of the Lamb. So turning your Bibles to Revelation chapter 2 verses 8 to 11 as we hear a message entitled Faithful Unto Death. Let's join Dr. Newfeld now. By the time John was writing the book of Revelation, it would seem that he was the last of the apostles. Each of them, tradition tells us, had died a martyr's death. Both Paul and Peter were martyred in Rome. Thomas was martyred in India, Matthew in Ethiopia, Philip in Carthage in North Africa, Simon the Zealot in Persia. On and on the stories go. Now John is left alone and he's in exile. And it's for this reason that it's highly unlikely that the apostles made up the stories of Jesus, especially the story of the resurrection. Men don't die for what they know to be untrue. These men were convinced that they saw Jesus rise, and that's why they sacrificed their lives for the gospel. As Peter said in 2 Peter 1 verse 16, we did not invent cleverly devised myths. Indeed, each of the apostles went to his death for the cause of Christ. Not one of them broke ranks. You know, in our contemporary world, the pattern laid down for us by the apostles is so often repeated. Whether it's in northern Nigeria, where government aid to devastated communities is withheld from Christians solely on the basis of their religion, or whether it's blasphemy laws in Pakistan being used against Christians there, or mob violence sometimes directed at pastors and evangelists in various countries around the globe, the reality is that thousands of Christians are killed for their faith each year, and many more are threatened or face severe financial ramifications because of their faith. Sometimes their children are denied an education. Sometimes their property is confiscated. Sometimes they must put up with slanderous charges and face the ridicule of others. The only reason Christians put up with this kind of mistreatment is because they believe Christ's resurrection from the dead is their hope. That the same Jesus that promised to rise from the dead and then did is the same Jesus who also promises that we will rise with him. You know, the ancient Christian church in the city of Smyrna was one such place where Christians face persecution. Before we read what Jesus had to say to that church, let's get a bit of background. Smyrna was located about 60 kilometers north of Ephesus in what is now referred to as the nation of Turkey. Like Ephesus, Smyrna also was located on the seacoast of the Adriatic Sea. And like Ephesus, the city was extremely wealthy, and they competed with Ephesus for the distinction of which was the foremost city of Asia. Remember that when this was called Asia, we're talking about what is now called Turkey. But Smyrna had an honor that was hers alone. Long before Rome became the dominant power that it was, way back in 195 BC, the city of Smyrna had erected a temple to the goddess of Rome. And they pledged their loyalty to Rome long before it was advantageous to do so. By 26 BC, when numerous cities were competing for the honor of building a temple to the Roman emperor Tiberius, it was Smyrna that was granted the privilege given to them by the Roman Senate. And so Smyrna was one of the world centers for the Roman imperial cult, or one of the world centers for the worship of Roman emperors. You know, whenever an emperor died, he was declared a god, and Smyrna was the first city to get on board. 
Indeed, the Roman historian and philosopher Cicero called Smyrna the city of our most faithful and ancient allies. The Apostle John had ordained a man by the name of Polycarp to be the bishop of Smyrna. Polycarp had been a personal disciple of John. Polycarp was known as a man who had known many of our Lord's disciples and also known for his preaching and his personal holiness. When he was 86 years of age, long after John had passed away, Polycarp was still preaching the gospel in Smyrna, and the hostility of Christians in Smyrna was still pronounced, and after all, they refused to call Caesar Lord and God and were considered traitors to Rome. And so the 86-year-old Polycarp, the year was AD 155, was taken into the arena in order to be burned and was given a chance to renounce his faith and go free. The last words of Polycarp before his martyrdom were these, Eighty and six years I have served him, and he has done me no wrong. How then can I blaspheme my king and my savior? You threaten me with a fire that burns for a season, and after a little while is quenched. But you are ignorant of the fire of everlasting punishment that is prepared for the wicked. And with that, Bishop Polycarp took his place among those martyred for the name of Christ in the city of Smyrna. But at the time of the writing of Revelation, all that was yet to come. But as we read Revelation 2, verses 8 to 11, we see Jesus' message to the beleaguered Christians in the city of Smyrna. And to the angel of the church of Smyrna write, The words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Let's break down this important message to Smyrna into four parts. The first has to do with how Christ identifies himself to that church. We'll call that who Jesus is to that church. The second is Jesus' encouraging message to that church, that is, what Jesus has to say to that church. The third has to do with what Jesus predicts will happen to that church. And the fourth and final word has to do with what Jesus promises that church. But here you might notice, before we begin, that Jesus offers no criticism to this church, none at all. Only this church and the church of Philadelphia receive no rebuke at all. And so we get a picture of a faithful church. And once we see a faithful church, we should immediately conclude that this is a church that we should see as a model for us today. So let's start by examining how Jesus identifies himself to that church. I'm reading verse 8. And to the angel of the church of Smyrna write, The words of the first and the last who died and came to life. Now, as before, we notice that when Jesus addresses the angel of the church, he's making note that he commissions his strong and powerful angels to do his bidding regarding every single Christian community. But as Jesus speaks to Smyrna, he knows they need to concentrate on two identifying markers of their Savior. The first is that he is the first and last. You remember, as we began our study in Revelation, we noticed in chapter 1, verse 8, that Jesus calls himself the Alpha and the Omega, the one who was, who is, and who is to come. Now, in this passage, Jesus takes upon himself the same title reserved only for God, 
the first and the last. Now, of course, this title comes from the book of Isaiah. In Isaiah 44, verse 6, God is speaking. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. I am the first, I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. So the title first and last is a title reserved for God alone. He exists before all things, and he exists after all things. He is ever existed one. The one reality that never changes and never passes away. See, why is that so important to Smyrna? Because they're facing the imperial might of Rome that claimed authority over their lives. And the believers in Smyrna were comforted to know that Christ was before Rome, and he will exist long after Rome is no more. Rome is but a blip on the historical timeline. But of course, Christ is not done. He is also the one who died and came to life. Facing martyrdom, the Christians in Smyrna were comforted in knowing that their Savior faced his own martyrdom and that death could not contain him because he existed before death and will exist long after death claims its last victim. He is Lord over death. And just so that we don't think that this is just wishful thinking, he demonstrated it by breaking death's bond and showing himself alive to his disciples with many convincing proofs. And by the way, this is so important for any of God's people today who are facing death. You know, if you've been diagnosed with a terminal illness, do not be afraid, child of God. Your Savior is the first and last, and he has shown you that he is greater than death. And if you're being persecuted for your faith, fear not. You know, perhaps your boss wants you to do something that your Christian conscience will not allow, and you're afraid that you might lose your job. What does it mean to hear Jesus identify himself as first and last, the one who has died and risen again? Is this not the ultimate note of triumph? Is this not why it is that all believers in Jesus are given a confidence and courage that allows them to stare any monster in the face and testify, I belong to Jesus? Indeed, the Christians in Smyrna counted on this, and so should you. Fear not. The words of the first and last are enough to calm all fears. Few series have stimulated as much response from our listeners as Dr. John Newfeld's Heaven series. Offering a biblical perspective on heaven, both our eyes and hearts are open to an amazing picture of what the follower of Jesus has to look forward to. When we last aired this series, we also offered the Heaven booklet authored by Randy Alcorn. Again, a wonderful overview of the promise of paradise. This booklet was so popular, we were unable to fulfill all the requests. But with the re-airing of the series by Dr. John, we've been able to acquire a very limited number of booklets to give away. So let me encourage you today to call and request your free copy of the booklet, Heaven, by Randy Alcorn, While Quantities Last. Call us at 1-800-663-2425 or ask by email at info at backtothebible.ca. We began by saying that Jesus had four things to say to the faithful church of Smyrna. The first was a reminder of his identity. The second is the encouraging word that he has for them. I'm reading Revelation 2 verse 9. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you're rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews but are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. You know, when Jesus says, I know... He means for that church to understand that he is intimately aware of the hardship they're presently enduring. 
Hardship doesn't mean that Jesus doesn't know, nor that he is not doing anything about it. You know, hardship is often what Jesus prepares for believers. Jesus deliberately led his disciples into the middle of the Sea of Galilee so that they might encounter a storm with him there. Jesus promised his followers that they would be persecuted for righteousness' sake. Hebrews tells us that in this, God is treating us as sons, and 1 Peter reminds us that hardship helps us to set our eyes on Christ and not on this world. Yet all of us who know Christ should know that Christ reserves hardship for us. But Jesus deeply enters into our experience as we suffer. He's not aloof from our plight, and he was intimate with the Christians in Smyrna during their plight. And so what is it that Jesus notices about them? Well, first, he notices their tribulation. The Greek word often refers to serious trouble, and in some cases, it can refer to the burden that crushes people. It's the kind of pressure that keeps pressing in on people, the kind that wears them down little by little, just takes all their strength. You see, all manner of people can handle persecution if it happens once or for a while. But the kind the Christians were facing in Smyrna just went on and on. The second word that Jesus uses is the word poverty. It seems like those two words, persecution and poverty, went together. In a city of considerable wealth, being a Christian required a financial price. It might have been that the trade guilds in Smyrna were held in the temple to Caesar and that swearing an oath to Caesar as God was required were locked out of good-paying jobs in that city. The word that Jesus uses is a very strong word, and so it must have been that poverty was extreme. You know, when Islam was on the rise, it was common to practice an imposed tax on anyone who did not convert, and in many cases, the economic burden was just too much for many. And that's how it must have seemed for the Christians in Smyrna. The burden was ongoing, and it was crushing. And in the midst of this description, Jesus adds the words, but you are rich. See, I can't help but notice how these words contrast to Jesus' words to the last church, that is the church in Laodicea. There, Jesus says, you say you're rich, but you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. And that's a lesson for all of us who live in a rich country, and we must hear it. Many a believer who has nothing has learned to content himself or herself in the promises of God, and many a rich believer complains and is dissatisfied. And if you're not under a crushing burden of poverty, but are not satisfied in Jesus, might I make a suggestion? Give your money away to the work of the gospel. But let's get back to the poor and persecuted Christians of Smyrna. One more thing. They were suffering under the slander of the Jews, and and some explanation is required here. The Roman government had granted the Jewish community an exemption. In order to make allowances for the Jewish religious convictions, Jews were exempted from offering sacrifices to Caesar or in participating in worship to Caesar. You know, early on, Christians were seen as a subcategory of Judaism, and so the same privilege was extended to them. But because of the rank hatred of Christ, many Jews urged the Roman government to offer Christians no exemptions. You know, when Bishop Polycarp was martyred in Smyrna, years after this letter was written, the Jewish community actually gathered wood for his burning. And here's the kicker. They did it on the Sabbath something forbidden by their law, but so great was their hatred against the Christian community. 
And that's why Jesus calls the Jewish community in Smyrna a synagogue of Satan. And says Jesus, I know all of this, and I'm deeply acquainted with your situation, and I bear with you in it, and I know how spiritually rich you are. And with that, Jesus tells him what the future holds. I'm I'm reading verses 10a. Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and for 10 days you will have tribulation. You know, many Bible students have pondered the phrase 10 days. What does that mean? You know, some have suggested it refers to a short period of time. It's kind of like a symbolic way of saying that the amount of days are bounded in by Christ and that when those days are done, the persecution will be no more. Well, perhaps... But I think something else is at stake here. You know, the numbers in Revelation are often highly symbolic. The number 10 often speaks either of God's authority or the rule of government. So, for instance, in Exodus 20, we read of the Ten Commandments, that is, God's laws that govern Israel. The ten plagues that brought Egypt down speak of God's authority over Pharaoh. And in Revelation 13, the ten horns of the beast speak of his rule. I think the testing of 10 days speaks of the government rule of Rome, that the government is going to oppress the church using laws at their disposal. Jesus is telling the church that up until now, you've had a great deal of pressure. Indeed, the pressure is going to intensify and become a governmental policy. And because it is 10 days, he does mean that whatever happens in the future has a limit to it. It can go no longer than what Christ has ordained. Now, we've noticed that Christ began this message to the Christians in Smyrna by first identifying himself, and then by telling them that he's intimate with their suffering, and then telling them what's going to come in the immediate future. But if all of that seems bad, well, it's Christ's last word to the church that must have overwhelmed them and deeply encouraged them. He gives them a promise. I'm reading halfway through verse 10 through to verse 11. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. You know, when Paul wrote the Corinthian church, he reminded them that there were many athletes in the ancient world that made tremendous sacrifices in order to train for the games just so that they would win what he called a perishable wreath. Crown of life does not perish. The crown of life is the crown of eternal life. In essence, what we find in verse 10b is both a command and a promise rolled into one. The command is the command to remain faithful, not to give in to the pressure, but to continue to remain true to Christ. Hear the warning. If you aren't faithful unto death, there is not a crown of life. See how silly it is to promise unfaithful people the reward of eternal life, for Christ makes no such promise. But let's look at the promise. In verse 11, the one who conquers, the one who remains faithful, even under pressure to cave in, this one is not hurt by the second death. You know, the first death is the death that every single human being faces. It's physical death. So what's the second death? Well, the answer is given to us in Revelation 20, verse 14, and there we read, death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. See, the second death is the lake of burning sulfur, of endless burning. It's the place of eternal torment. All believers must understand that the first death is of little consequence. 
The book of Revelation speaks of two resurrections, the first being the resurrection unto life, and the second, the resurrection unto death, meaning the lake of fire. In the face of this immense reality, the church of Smyrna is promised that the time of suffering is soon over, and the time of reward is almost upon them. And when we think of it, this is not only a reality for the ancient Christians in the city of Smyrna, this is a reality for every church, in every age. Here says Jesus what the Spirit is saying to the churches. Think about life in all its eternal dimensions. Do not worry about what Paul called these momentary light afflictions. Think rather about the real issues that lie before every human being, the issue of eternity. Think of this life as a test as to whether you will trust Christ or not. Think of life as your willingness to keep your eyes on the one who rose from death and defeated its power. Don't get distracted by the difficulties that you might face, for they are but ten days, and then they are over. But the crown of life has no due date, no cancellation deadline. It is eternal. John, the entire issue of suffering, and particularly chronic suffering, is is one we, we face a lot in the church. Those who seem to be always downcast, those who are always burdened, those who always, well, they seem to get the bad breaks. But, you know, I think as we've traveled, we recognize, and I think historically we recognize, sometimes other countries of the world, internationally, they look at suffering somewhat differently than we might in North America. Yeah, they sure do. I, I, I tend to think, Ben, that the wealthier we become and the more that we can keep suffering at bay, uh, the more we tend to be sensitive to any form of suffering. And that's not to minimize, you know, chronic sufferers who may suffer for many years. Uh, I mean, you and I have both known individuals like that. But I, I know that sometimes the questions that people ask, I mean, where is God in all of that? I have found this remarkable thing among persecuted Christians around the world. In some of the places where they are most persecuted, the question is not, where is God in all of this? But rather, there is a statement, I find God in every place. So many of those believers are not even asking for an end to suffering. They're simply asking, can I continue to remain faithful in this? And so their questions are very different than we might have in the West. And maybe we should begin to articulate a worldview that sees Christ in the midst of suffering. I think that would be wonderful. John, I think that's a great insight. Thanks again for joining us this week. Join us again next week with Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. February is often referred to as the month of love. So this month we want to place an emphasis upon the love found in one of the greatest institutions, marriage. The significance of marriage today is often downplayed, becoming increasingly one of convenience. But that was neither God's intention or design, and that's the point of Dr. Neufeld's new series, Celebration of Marriage. During this five-message series, Dr. Neufeld focuses on the covenant and intimacy of marriage, but also conducts three insightful interviews with three married couples discussing preparing for marriage, dealing with today's marriage pitfalls, and redeeming a failing marriage. 
Listen on air online through the audio mail, podcast, or mobile application. Or for this month only, order the entire series on CD, Our Gift to You, for the sake of creating God-honoring and healthy marriages. Ask for your free CD series by calling 1-800-663-2425 or order online at backtothebible.ca. Yeah.